Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 18. This podcast is brought to you by local sponsors and listeners like yourself. If you're interested in sponsorship, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, I'm Pani Anuel, a professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Well, you may or may not have heard a term called academic entrepreneur. Academic entrepreneur is a university scientist. Oftentimes it's a professor, but also sometimes a PhD student or postdoc researcher who sets up a business company in order to commercialize the results of their research. The origin of academic entrepreneur dates back to the early 19th century. It started when a scientific career had very few sources of funding and support coming from the university, state, or federal level, very much in contrast to the system today. To create more opportunities for employment, the scientists back then began to act like entrepreneurs, linking the two fields of science and entrepreneurship to create academic entrepreneurs. As you can see, academic and entrepreneurships are strongly linked in many ways as they work together in contributing to technology and economic developments in our society. So today we'll learn from an academic entrepreneur, Dr. Adam Ryson, the CEO and founder of Intelligent Medicine Inc. and see how he started his exciting adventures. So welcome, Adam. Thank you very much, Shal, for having me. I look forward to talking about my experiences as a academic researcher, as well as an entrepreneur, talking about my company, as well as the research that we've done up to this point. Great. Thank you, Adam. I know you from when you were a PhD student, I guess, towards the end of your PhD studies, and then you moved on to start your own company and it all exciting and everything. So why don't we start with your career path? Where did you go to school and what did you major in and why did you choose that field? We'll start with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all my post high school academics were done at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I started there in 2010 as a mechanical engineering major, and it was pretty much during that time when we started doing the project-related courses that I really recognized my interest in mechanical engineering and the field itself. So I liked getting hands-on working with mechanical aspects as well as the robotic and programming aspects of it. And then I liked what I was doing so much that I decided I wanted to continue at RPI for my PhD as well. And so I graduated bachelor's in 2014, and then I finished up my PhD in 2019. That's great. I didn't realize that you spent so many years here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when did you start thinking about doing a startup? Was it in college or during grad school or somewhere in between? Yeah, I would say it was probably around my junior year of undergraduate. I was taking an RPI course called Inventor Studio, and I really liked the idea of coming up with a novel idea that can fix a problem for somebody else and then figuring out what you need to do in order to 
create that solution. And to me, that always interested me because it wasn't, okay, you have to follow this defined path, but it's more so along the lines of here's a problem, come up with a solution. And that kind of segues also into why I went down the research path is that in the research path, you're also looking to solve large problems. So I would say it was pretty much through the Inventor Studio program and also going to some of the entrepreneurship programs that the Severino Center had set up that really got me engaged with the startup community and wanting to pursue that. Now, this starting your own business after graduation is somewhat considered as non-traditional. Right. So typically people graduate either out of college or PhD, they go on work for a company, work in industry or work for a national lab or et cetera. But you then started immediately this company. Did you know anyone who had done that? Or do you have someone that you had talked to ahead of time to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Not really. I'll be honest, out of everybody that I went to graduate school with, out of all my friends, I'm the only one that pretty much went towards that path of entrepreneurship, especially after graduate school. I think there are a few people during my undergrad who went off to become entrepreneurs and start their own business. They said, you know what? I just finished up my bachelor's. I can go out and I can do this. But what I noticed in graduate school is the longer people were in graduate school, the more eager they were to go out and start making what we would call real money. I have a lot of friends who say, you know what, I just spent four years in undergrad and then I spent four to six years in graduate school. I need to start paying off loans. I need to start working. And then maybe down the line, I'll want to do a startup. But out of everybody that I know, they all went straight into research or academia right afterwards. So I would say out of the group that I'm aware of, I'm kind of one of the only. <laughs> that makes it more special, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well, with that, then, do you think your PhD study or the degree itself actually helped you become an entrepreneur? Or you think that was just more knowledge kind of thing? I definitely think the PhD degree helped me for two major reasons. The first reason is that it gave me the problem solving skills that is often needed and required in entrepreneurship. So you need to be able to come up with business hypotheses. You need to come up with prototyping hypotheses that often need to be tested and iterated upon that a PhD program provides allowed for me to do. In addition to that, it gave me the ability to start working on grants at a young point in my career where I was exposed to NIH grant processes and NSF grant processes that makes it much easier to then apply for those as a business. What we've often seen in many of these grant applications is that they want to see a well-rounded team. And if we're applying for a fairly scientific type of research or something that's fairly technical, they're going to want to see a team that has PhDs on there. They're going to want to see teams that also have MBAs. So I think the additional schooling helped me in my skill set as well as the way that I am displayed as a founder for a company. So that was a very interesting point that you mentioned, and it emphasizes, I guess, the value of your PhD and the impacts on your business. And I must confess that I really like the name of your company. It's very Thank nice you. selection. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do in your company? 
Intelligent Medicine is a software and simulation company that focuses on medical and engineering-based technology. We are looking to bring disruptive medical technology into cloud-based computing. So right now, what we are currently working on is a simulator that demonstrates the real-time CFD baking of particle movement in building spaces, primarily focusing in medical areas such as hospitals, retirement homes, and other public spaces. And what we are looking to do is mitigate the amount of infectious spread that takes place due to particle transmission and human behavior. Wow, that's very fascinating. It reminds me of, the, I saw an article in Science recently about how with the COVID, how these particles, they are moving and then they did some CFD analysis of the movement and predicting the right locations for the people to sit in that closed room. So you mentioned CFD, so I'm guessing that you are using some of your PhD work. But can you comment what you have learned during your PhD program, if it's applicable to what you do? Yeah, so actually it definitely started with what I was doing in my PhD. My PhD focused on creating a virtual simulator for endotracheal intubation, which is an anesthesia procedure. And where that transition happened was we were interested in seeing the physiology of a patient and how based on the patient physiology, how that would influence the amount of aerosols that they would generate. Now, the way that this turned into a commercialized idea and where we evolved from there is we took that from outside of the operating room and we said, if we can look at all the people that are walking around in a space, let's say we're looking in a waiting room, can we try to simulate the breathing patterns and the behaviors in those individual people in order to figure out how those particles will interact with the space and how they'll move around. So it definitely started with the motivation of trying to help out in the medical community, but it moved from there in trying to serve a much larger group of individuals than just trying to figure out what's going on in the operating room. If I may inject here a little bit, Adam's company has a really phenomenal website. We're going to post that link in the show notes so that people can take a look. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. And thank you, Adam, for explaining what your company does and how it's related to your PhD work. Can you take us back to when the idea started? How did you start with this idea of starting your business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so back when I was in graduate school, I, I wanted to start a business that had to do with medical simulation. It was what I was working on for my PhD, and I had a lot of experience of interacting with doctors and turning their clinical-based ideas into technology and, and turning it into software. So I wanted to create a simulation company. And so a few of the collaborators that I was working with at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center out in Boston approached me during COVID and said, hey, we're interested in seeing if there's a way that we can model how spread is taking place, how COVID spread is taking place right now in the operating room. And I said, that's a really interesting question. And I think that would be very hard to solve given some of the constraints that exist in the CFD environment. So I saw here an opportunity of where we'd have to improve technology in order to be able to offer such a simulation that would be able to 
help in the clinical setting as well as help in the building and design stages for a given facility. So you mentioned that as part of getting ready to start your own business, you took some classes during your PhD program. Can you tell us if taking those classes were essential for your starting your business or there are some other ways if somebody wants to start a new business, what they need to do or what are your recommendations there? I would say that it was pretty much split between my self-motivation for trying to take business-related courses, taking the actual courses that RPI provided, and then engaging in extracurricular activities that were offered at RPI. So I'll start off with the first one where I pretty much started taking some courses that were just YouTube video courses that would pretty much teach me, hey, how do you start an LLC or how do you start a company? And what is needed for that? And so I actually had other attempts in the past to start an LLC where we did consulting work. And that really got me exposed to interacting with people and taking payments to do work, which feels so different than receiving a paycheck from your job where you have to actually engage with a customer. And then the next part are the classes that I took at RPI. As I mentioned earlier, Inventor Studio was one that was very impactful. It got me to think about my own problems and try to create a solution for it. But also there's entire, like, for instance, there's an entire inventor type academia track now at RPI. They change the name every few years, but it pretty much works on innovation and getting involved with business. So I think that things like courses like that really help. And then the third one, and probably what I would say was the biggest help, were the extracurriculars. So as an engineering student, I did not really go to the business school very often until I started wanting to start my business. And so I went to the Severino Center, which is the business area and the entrepreneurship area at RPI. And I engaged with them pretty much at their after class activities for startups. Just they had these founder meetings that really got us engaged as co-founders for a startup and trying to help us through our problems. And then a few years back, they started offering an NSF iCorps program, which is the NSF Innovation Corps program. And that's offered both at the regional level and at the national level. So I got to work with the Severino Center to pretty much apply what I was doing in this regional iCorps. And it gave me pretty much the framework for going out, performing customer discovery, getting to understand my customers and the business that I would have to provide in order to solve that for them. So I was able to really get on the ground, receive funding for doing customer discovery, and it really helped me out getting engaged with investors as well as customers. So you've had your business for about a year now since you graduated. What are some of the major challenges that you've experienced since that time? So there are a lot of difficulties and I think that everybody is going to be in their own unique situation, but let me go into kind of the ones that I felt really impacted me. I'll pretty much give one from each of the three big categories that are coming to my mind. Now, the first being a small business, the second, your personal life and third money. So the first one being a small business, it's difficult to find people to work with you and to have the same ambitions about the goals that you have. That's even more so if you're not able to pay them. So when I was getting started, I had to 
tried to find people that wanted to work with me and wanted to collaborate with me and be able to put in the amount of time and effort that I was willing to put in. Nowadays, you can't just expect someone to also want to put 80 hours into your own idea. They have their ideas and they have their goals too. So it's definitely a hurdle that I still see myself overcoming to this day and trying to really get the small business moving has been difficult. Another thing around there is that as a small business, you have to say, all right, this is my first customer. I sold to them. But that first customer does not want to be your first customer. They want to see that you have a record of being able to have sold to people in the past and that your product has been established. So that was definitely a hurdle that we've overcame a few months ago, but it's always on my mind in terms of saying, how do we get that next customer? The second thing is personally related. And this is always going to be different for other people because I have a wife and I have a house. And when you think about those things, you know, what does my wife want me to do on the weekends versus what my business probably wants me to do on the weekends are two very different things. So I always have to keep that in mind and being able to have a balance there is, is very difficult. I would say that I actively have to try to work under 60 hours a week in order to not get lost in the work that I'm doing. And even nowadays with people who have 40 hour jobs, they can still find themselves in the office for 50 or 60 hours. Like during the pandemic, for instance, my office is at home. I if, I, if I'm in my office, I'm probably working and I've had to really be able to, you know, actively tell myself, hey, you know, take some time off. Don't work over the weekend. Balance is extremely important. And then the third one is raising capital and getting money. As researchers, you guys also must experience having to raise uh, research funds in order to keep your lab staffed and to keep it running. And in a startup, the same thing can be said where I have to think about what is the best way for me to raise funds for my company. Because I could go to an angel investor or I could go to somebody who is willing to invest in my company. And if they're interested in my technology, they might give me money for a big stake in my company, but I could see that money probably within a month or so. However, if I wanted to go purely the grant-based route, I have to spend hours writing the grant, researching the grant, then that's, there goes a month or two. Then I have to submit that grant and I won't hear back for six, eight or nine months. It seems like nowadays we haven't heard back for certain grants after about eight or nine months. And in that time, we can't just sit idly by and expect the company to keep moving. Companies don't stop, especially with what we're developing, where its current use ha is most important during COVID. Um, we continue to you know, build the company up despite not having you know, traditional funding coming in. We did receive funding from business competitions and things like that, but that's definitely one of the biggest issues that we've had in the past and that we still encounter today. Thanks for that. That was a very thorough response. And I like the way you shed light on a difference between going after academic funding and other sources of funding. That is something that we struggle with, but we've gotten used to in the academy waiting. And one of the things we always do, that's why we're always writing proposals, right? Because it takes such a long time to receive that funding. So based on everything that you said, can you give us some ideas 
about what were some lessons learned in your very first year? Because I don't know the statistics right off, but I always hear people say so many X number of companies fail within the first year. And if you get out that first year, then you're golden. So can you tell me what that experience was like? Were you stressed out? Did you have that in mind? Like, okay, this is month number six. Like, <laughs> can you tell us about that experience? Yeah. So in the first year, I would say probably one of the biggest things are the unforeseen costs. You should always be prepared to shell out a couple thousand dollars upfront in the business prior to starting that business, because there's a lot of things that you're not going to expect to have to pay for that end up coming out of your pocket. For instance, just getting your business set up, getting a website up and going. Those are just some of the early on things. But as soon as you're trying to sell something, you need to hire a lawyer to come up with your terms of service. You need to have your lawyers vet through your contracts. These are things that you wouldn't want to have to do without because it's a safety net for you to ensure that your company is safe and that you're protected in the case that anything goes wrong with your product. So these things that I definitely started to learn early on. And the other thing that I really dread and hate is I have to do taxes again, you know, for a company that is on top of the taxes I have to do personally and business taxes are even more of a headache because you don't know a whole lot in terms of what you can and can't do. And again, this is kind of an unforeseen cost. You'd rather go speak to an accountant. So there are a lot of these things that you need to get your company off the ground and running so that you're doing what you set your business out to do. I didn't set out on my business to do taxes and to do lawyers and contract things. No, I want to keep that stuff to a minimum in my time. And I want to spend time either coming up with the ideas or implementing them. So being prepared to tackle those is definitely one of the, the hardest things in the first year. But after you do it the first year, you set your dates down. You say, all right, here's a reminder to do a quarterly meeting. And year two, you'll be prepared for that. So my closing question is one that you'll probably get asked all the time, when, especially when, you know, you're already famous, right? So <laughs> you're putting that in the ether. But for people who are listening and who aspire to start their business, what would you do differently if you had mm -hmm. to start it all over again? I know with Pi and Lucy, you know, when we thought about this podcast, I'm sure that we have a litany of things that we would probably do differently. So can you tell us what things you would do differently and what advice do you have for listeners who are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pretty much my advice is the same thing as how I would do things differently. And I would, as coming from a PhD level and from a researcher position, I would definitely start with applying for grants and writing the business plans and submitting to competition fundings much earlier. Because as I realized is that those grant cycles, you pretty much, you submit it, it's gone for eight months, and then you have to pretty much resubmit off the feedback you get. And if you are able to submit a grant half a year earlier, than you would have done otherwise, you get your feedback that much quicker. Pretty much on top of that, I would say to submit to additional funding sources 
but I do not enjoy writing grants for that much. I love to sit and program and I love to put prototypes together. If you caught me like at Friday at 10 PM, I would be coding. I wouldn't be writing a grant. Like looking back, I would be telling my past self, Hey, spend more time writing grants. You're not going to enjoy it, but it will pay off in a bigger way than just programming. I love that, Adam. Well, thank you, Adam. I've learned so much today. This is really very good and useful practical information for many aspiring entrepreneurs that's coming out of academia. I can see how all your training paid off. <laughs> I would love to follow up with you in the near future just to see how things are going. And we're going to put your company link here. And if you think there's anything useful for our listeners to read or to look into, please let me know and I will put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming in here today and giving us all the lessons you've learned. That's really very precious. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. It was a great, great time talking with you all. And I'm glad that I was able to shed some light on a new area. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.